This episode of The Hash is sponsored by Bitstamp and the Galaxy Brains Podcast. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, it's me, Zach Seward. You're watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. Happy Friday. It's one day after those Trump NFTs dropped and got the whole place <laughs> worked up. Oh my goodness. Anyway, I'm with Adam Levine, Jen Sinassi, and Will Foxley. We're going to talk about maybe a bit more boring stuff to start. Adam, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Zach. <laughs> Our first story of the day, I swear I speak English takes us to the seat of U.S. political power, Washington, D.C., where Congressman Patrick McHenry, a Republican who will lead the House Financial Services Committee come January, has sent a letter to former Fed Chief and current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen asking that a controversial crypto tax provision be put on hold. Folks who have been around for a while will probably remember the drama back in July of last year when the ambiguous language was inserted into a piece of must-pass legislation. It's controversial because, as written, it could create a paradox where rules meant for brokers would be applied to a lot of people and even open source software that actually aren't brokers and who, by nature of how the blockchain works, can't comply with the regulations intended for them. Officials at the time provided non-binding assurances, in other words, happy talk, that the law won't be applied in that way, but it is all talk so far and little action. The congressman's letter asks that the implementation of that rule be put on hold until this issue is dealt with. Jen, let's start this one off with you this morning. Yeah, I think this is such a sensible thing to end the year off with. I remember when the language was introduced, we spoke about it at length on on this show and it would include, you know, wallet providers, miners, people who just like, I don't have enough information to keep up or at least do the reporting that is required if we look at the language. I thought it was really interesting, Adam, and you brought this up. So the article says that the Treasury Department has not issued formal guidance in addressing the provisions but they've sent letters that say that they will not include certain groups like minors. And I think that when we introduce all of this extra documentation and all of these letters back and forth that say, actually, the thing we officially wrote is not what we meant. And here's a letter that says that, but we don't change the words. I think that this is just regulators taking advantage, making more room for uncertainty making more room for loopholes so that when there are people that they want to go after and they don't have a valid reason, they can rely on this ambiguity. And it is sad. But I think that this is sensible and that I, and I hope that we can end the year on a good note and we can pause until we get some clarity. Will? Yeah, so many bad things happened in 2022 in terms of crypto that I forgot that we had this thing hanging over our heads, <laughs> right? Earlier in the year, we knew that There was this legislation packed inside the infrastructure bill that could be detrimental to all of the participants in crypto. We're talking miners, we're talking validators, we're talking normal users and transacting back and forth. We're talking about people who are actually developing the code itself. Every single person who really operates in crypto in some meaningful way could be impacted by this bill. And so it stands to reason that we need to take it head on. If we go back to what happened over the summer and previously with this bill, there was a lot of different interpretations of how this bill would be enforced, right? Like the broker rule or how broker is interpreted was the centerpiece of this, right? If you are a broker, then you have to KYC. But how do you KYC a miner? Or how do you KYC a validator or someone just transacting or an open source software developer? And that became a key question. The thing is that a lot of people thought, well, according to like what they're talking in Congress right now, 
broker does not include a lot of these people, right? Broker is uh, larger than that. Broker is someone who's like a centralized exchange. And what McHenry is here wanting is just to clarify that, to make sure that it's down on paper, that we know what a broker is. Because as we left it on the record back in the summer, we don't really have that down. We have the notes from when they're talking in Congress about it, but we don't have it down on paper. So they're really wanting to get that down before it moves forward, which I applaud them for. Adam, I'll throw it back up to you for your take. Yeah, I think the thing that's worth saying here is that the reason why this matters is because people like me don't trust Congress. Uh, you can look at Pew polling on the issue, which goes back to, you know, like the Eisenhower administration. And we're not at an all-time low right now. That came a couple of years ago when there was about 17% in the U.S. who, when polled, uh, said that they actually trust Congress to do like the right thing and to actually be, you know, like competent. Today, it's 20%. So that means that out of every five people, four of them don't think that the government as far as Congress is concerned, is actually good at what they do and doesn't trust them to kind of do the right thing. So it's always funny when we get these stories where you've got an agency that's like, oh, hey, just trust us. Like we said it and it's definitely going to be that way. Like, no, we don't trust you. Like nobody trusts you. Like that's, this is not even a minority position. It's a majority position. Zach, what do you think? I think it's more like square peg round hole, right? I mean, crypto is kind of a new paradigm. That's not just some silly hype thing, right? It's a new system for how financial ecosystems can operate. And they don't necessarily comport with existing understandings of how to regulate current financial systems. And that's what we see this never-ending debate with this legislation. Hopefully it advances towards some, you know, more perfect language around these things. But what we see in this debate is the application of former heuristics to new things that don't really comport with how those heuristics work, right? Like if you called everyone a broker and you make everybody get a money, was it a money services license, something like that, that's a significantly onerous and misguided thing that is trying to wind its way into law through various paths. And I think that to me is what I see when I see these stories. I see square peg, round hole, regulators are still wrapping their heads around this thing. And they don't yet fully know how to do it right in a way that speaks to some of the baked in advantages that these open ledgers can provide them. That's just my thought, but I saw Will's hand. Yeah, one thing I want to bring up, and I think Adam will have some thoughts on top of this, is there's an explicitly anti-privacy amendment within this provision as well. Talking about Section 6050I, which McHenry is also looking for some more language to be added around. And that's that you need to have identification if you're moving around $10,000 in cash or digital assets. And that's a pretty burdensome uh, requirement on a lot of people who are trying to operate their companies privately or trying to operate their lives privately. Like $10,000 might not seem like a lot, but it is private property. And so why should the government have the ability to snoop under these things? I think a lot of regulators look at this and say $10,000 is probably like a good bar, good requirement in order to uncover criminals or money laundering or something of that nature. But if you look at digital assets and the reason for them coming about, a lot of it was because of privacy, because people didn't want the government snooping in on what they're doing. And I think this provision really hits on what crypto is about. And so if this passes and you have to report movements of $10,000 or more, you're going to have a lot of problems for people who are just trying to transact within crypto. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to use crypto for moving large amounts of money. Now, wire transfers are onerous, they're really difficult. Moving something with USDC, moving large amounts of money, it's pretty simple. And adding provision to this brings us back to the, the world of wire, uh, sending wires. 
Adam, I'll throw it up to you. Get your thoughts on that, though. Yeah, so I, I completely echo everything that you said there, Will. But actually, I want to I want to zoom in on what Zach was talking about with the square peg round hole kind of nature of the thing. You know, we saw the FTX uh, hearings earlier this week, particularly the House one, had a lot of really revealing moments. I thought there's kind of two points to make here. One is that by by nature of forcing institutions that fundamentally don't work the way that older institutions did into these frameworks you wind up with kind of the worst of all worlds where they can't really do the compliance. And also the compliance is insufficient in lots of ways. You know, exchanges, as far as crypto stuff is concerned, are actually regulated typically under the same types of rules as like a Western Union, like payments transmitter type of thing, which is both onerous because you have to get licenses from all the states that issue them, which is a big schlep versus just one kind of generalized license. And then the other thing is, is that it's insufficient in terms of the protection that it actually provides because these exchanges aren't like Western Union. They're not just holding your money to transfer it. They're holding your money sometimes for very long periods of time. And the regulations really kind of aren't, don't have the, the muscle to address that. The final point is just that one of the reasons why that hasn't happened, why we haven't gotten good regulations, is because there's this perception in Congress and perhaps elsewhere in the political world that if we were to provide regulations that are specified for the purpose, this would somehow legitimize the technology as if the technology needs to be legitimized by the government. When in reality, the government just needs to set the rules of the road, those rules need to work, and then those rules need to be enforced as written. And so again, we're just kind of getting the worst of all worlds here. We hope that I think this, you know, this might be a better outcome if uh, real pressure gets applied to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. But my expectations are pretty low for competence at this point. Zach, I think you've got the next story. I do indeed. We're going to stay in the world of regulations, but we're going to go global. We're going to go to the Bank of International Settlements. That's like the group of the world's central banks, right? This is the central bank of central banks, continuing their exploration into crypto and here to centralized finance. A pair of reports out today aren't exactly bullish on what DeFi can accomplish. And they say that they might not even eliminate the middlemen that crypto often wants to get rid of. So these are a pair of reports from BIS, which has been historically quite bearish on DeFi, but does suggest that their continued interest in understanding these technologies is at least pretty well established at this point. Uh, Jen, a few nuggets in this one. I'm going to throw it to you for your thoughts. BIS on DeFi, what are you thinking? BIS would say this, right? They would say DeFi is not good. We're an intermediary. We want to keep operating like we are. I think that the good part about this story is that we are talking about maybe some of the sticking points of DeFi. DeFi is so early. So there are problems, there are issues and pain points that we need to solve. I think though, if you juxtapose that against the traditional finances that have for so long failed so many people, there are so many solutions in DeFi that just need to be worked on. And so when I read this, I think it's great that we're pointing out the pain points. What is upsetting about this report to me is that it calls for regulation to fix some of these pain points. And it says, you know, so many DeFi platforms, so many DeFi exchanges are actually centralized. I think if we regulate too soon, we're not giving these platforms enough space to actually achieve that decentralization that we talk about, right? And Hester Peirce has brought this up when she talks about her regulatory sandbox. We need to allow platforms that are trying to achieve decentralization, the room and the space to do that. And if we apply regulation too quickly, we're just setting the system up for failure and we're going to repeat the same problems that we are trying to solve. Well, yeah, this paper to me was basically a nothing burger. It was actually kind of lame just to read it because it's talking about a lot of the, the points and uh, issues with DeFi that we know about. Like we know that oracles can be slow and that they can be 
they can collude against the system. We know that when you're liquidating in your native token, it's going to put negative price pressure on your native token. We know these things. All the builders know about these things. They've actually known about them you know, going back to 2018 when Compound was just being built out of a San Francisco apartment. Like People have known about these issues, and now we just have a nice little report from an economist saying the facts. And it's like, okay, great. You're not really introducing anything that's going to help this. I do love that they point out regulation, right? Which is always just like the classic. They see a market failure and their first thought is, hey, we need a regulator to step in here. But they're failing to look at what the innovation here is in the first place, that we have completely autonomous markets on chain. You don't need anyone to interact with them. They just do their thing. If you get over leverage and the market price moves against you, you're going to get liquidated. If you're not, you can keep your loan outstanding, go use it for some other economic activity. So that's why I hate seeing these bank reports because they always just seem to call out the obvious, but they don't add any solutions and they're not interested in adding solutions. They're just interested in calling out for more regulation. And I'm not thinking that it's like nefarious in any sense of the word. Like maybe it is. They are the BIS. They have an interest in keeping banks uh, or money on banks, right? That's going to be their interest. But at the same time, I think it's more incompetence or just not having an interest in the space like other people in crypto. Adam, up to you. Yeah, I'll definitely go there. Uh, so I definitely do think that it is uh, perhaps not evil, but it is malicious. Certainly it is power recognizing threats to its power and acting accordingly. Uh, I think, again, the, the very intentional misunderstanding to my eyes of the difference between decentralized DeFi, which again are things like Maker, which have not had any problems uh, because of the way that they operate versus sort of the facade type companies. Like if you want to make a distinction between here's the regulations for DeFi where it involves a centralized third party and then over here's the regulations for DeFi that don't because these are effectively self-regulating you know, uh, entities, then I think that that's valid. But really when I see a story like this, what I really read in the headline is cat says dogs are bad. And that's pretty much that's pretty much like it. It's there's no nuanced take here. This is just someone looking out for their own interest. And certainly there is a lot of threat to that interest that comes from these technologies becoming increasingly popularized and proving in many cases to be much more stable and reliable than the systems that we are supposed to trust in the real world, but which repeatedly fail us over and over again. Zach? Yeah. I mean, DeFi ain't perfect, right? I mean, it's worth remembering that DeFi is still being constructed towards something that is more widely used. Most of the biggest dApps on Ethereum, if you're talking about daily active users, they could all fit in a football stadium, right? This is a very small slice of the world that is interacting with DeFi protocols in a meaningful way. But DeFi, I think the promise of DeFi remains especially compelling in this day and age in the wake of FTX and other CeFi implosions. The promise of DeFi is that there are these on-chain things that provide you bank-like functionality without having to jump through the hurdles of establishing a relationship with a bank or anyone else for that matter. And for a lot of people the world over for whom the financial system isn't working especially effectively, that's a really promising tool. And I think that I would hope that the BIS is studying this stuff in good faith to see what good stuff can be encouraged and what bad stuff can be nipped in the bud while DeFi is still in its early innings. Times are tough, particularly for crypto, but Bitstamp's different. Bitstamp is the longest-running crypto exchange and among the most regulated in the world, which includes a bit license in New York and a payment institution license in Europe. And when it comes to your funds, with Bitstamp, your crypto belongs to you. All your fiat and crypto are kept 100% separated. It's why Crypto Compare ranked Bitstamp the number one crypto exchange, awarding them the highest possible AA rating. Learn more at bitstamp.net. 
Hey, Will Foxley here, co-host of The Hash. One thing we can take away from everything going on in crypto right now is that it's important to go deep and verify. Crypto Twitter is great, but 280 characters can only go so far. One podcast we love is Galaxy Brains. Here's the host, Alex Thorne, head of research at Galaxy Digital. Thanks, Will. For in-depth takes and probing analysis on topics, trends, and events across the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ecosystem, check out Galaxy Brains, our weekly podcast. Find Galaxy Brains on your favorite podcast app and on galaxy.com forward slash research. Presented to you by one of the most trusted teams in the industry. Let's go over Gemini land and talk about what's happening with the Winklevi owned exchange. According to their own updates, the exchange went offline for a few hours in order to do some updates and maintenance on the exchange's backend. This, of course, follows after they shut down withdrawals for the Gemini Earn program because of Genesis Trading's own shutdown of withdrawals stemming from its exposure to the FTX exchange, which went under. So we got a lot to unpack there, but more or less, a lot of people are worried about Gemini because of its exposure to FTX. And whenever it goes offline, even for just a period of maintenance, people are going to start asking questions. Zach, I want to throw this one up to you. I don't think there is a ton here besides sit and wait, because we're all basically waiting on seeing what happens with Genesis trading. A lot of jitters, a lot of dominoes, a lot of FUD out there. I think this is a story about that. It was down for seven hours. People were like, oh no, is this the next one to fall? Sure enough, it's not yet, at least. We're not here to FUD, but it's been a long and upstanding piece of the crypto ecosystem for a while now. But when stuff happens like this, in times like these, people maybe rightly get a little bit worried and start freaking out a little bit and doing things that are probably animated by the fear of losing their funds. So strange things happen in crypto. People do lose their funds when massive exchanges go insolvent. Uh, this doesn't appear to be one of those cases, but it makes sense that people would be acting with extreme caution in the current market condition, the way we've seen all these titans tumble. So yeah, this is what happens when people are worried and you see stories like this where there's a seven hour outage, people assume the worst and you just kind of wait and see. That's it. I think that's pretty much it. I don't know. Adam? You got that was calming. <laughs> yeah, calming. I think, I think you nailed nice it. That was nice, Zach. Thanks, guys. It is Appreciate it. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that this isn't much of a story here. Uh, again, like it just shows the kind of sentiment that's going on in the space right now and just like concerns abound everywhere you look and anything that happens that, you know, can be interpreted in a way that might be negative is being interpreted such. Even with that said, though, I think that it is worth noting that like the way that both these things collapse and also the way that you protect yourself sometimes are connected together. Uh, what exchanges describe as a run on the bank sometimes, as in the SBF example, is actually just people taking money that they didn't know that they had in a bank, <laughs> that they thought that was theirs on an exchange, pulling it out and showing that actually there are liquidity or insolvency problems uh, within the resulting thing. So I, th I mean, my, my guidance would be to the extent that Anybody is concerned about the, the tokens that you have anywhere in any centralized you know, entity, you can always just pull them out. And then worst case scenario, you catalyze the collapse. Uh, but, you know, like, I don't know. I kind of feel like that, that's an appropriate way to take and that, you know, uh, companies that have these problems and are hiding them, uh, like, I don't have a problem with applying pressure to them in that way where it's not like you're not trying to collapse an exchange. You're literally just withdrawing your tokens from it because that's a thing that you can do. 
Like that seems like that's probably the advised thing for folks who are nervous out there today. Again, to the extent that you can. Probably bad advice for the crypto industry, but I think good advice on an individual basis. <laughs> Jen, what do you think? I like that advice, Adam. Protect yourself. So I'm not a Gemini customer. I wasn't an FTX customer, but I can only imagine the PTSD that people who had funds on FTX and maybe have funds with Gemini feel when they see an announcement like this, right? Especially given the current climate. I think we need to just come back a little bit and remember that exchanges do go down for maintenance often, especially now we're in a bear market. There have been a lot of layoffs across the board. Sometimes the maintenance takes longer than expected. So not fudding, but I, yes, the PTSD is real, especially every time I read a story like this, I think back to SBF's tweet from November 7th that said, your assets are fine. Everything is fine that he later deleted. And so I don't want to scare people out there, but Adam's advice is great. If you are afraid, just hold your own coins and wait out this turbulent time. And it's my turn. You guys want to talk about social media? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Jack Dorsey recently said that he blames himself for giving Twitter too much power to regulate speech in a blog post he published. He said the company became burdened with too much power and outside pressure from advertising budgets. Instead, he says Twitter should have focused on tools to more easily manage conversations by themselves. In the same blog post, he announced that he would be donating $1 million per year to Signal. And in separate news, he has donated 14 Bitcoin worth almost $250,000 to Noster, an open protocol that aims to create a censorship-resistant global social network. Adam, I'm kicking this one right off to you. Seems like Jack has some regrets about how he handled Twitter and is maybe trying to make up for that through these donations. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a, you know, it's a tough situation to, to be in that, uh, that he is in right now. But I think that as we continue to see, uh, you know, Musk, the Musk own Twitter release new things through independent journalists like Barry Weiss uh, and Matt Taibbi, we're seeing that he was largely a passenger, uh, it seems, within kind of the entity that he was nominally the CEO of. And there were a lot of these decisions that were being made that intensely shaped the conversation over the last, you know, four or five years. Uh, which were made with what sure looked like partisan objectives and kind of a, here's the, you know, the criminal, now let's reverse engineer this thing to find the crime. So I think that, again, like he's been put a little bit to shame by what Musk has done since he took over the organization. And I think that it, it you know, he's looking for a way to kind of reclaim some of the, the high profileness. He was a really respected person for a long period of time in the tech industry. And I think that what we're seeing isn't a good look for him, uh, certainly not kind of what happened within Twitter. And uh, as we get more transparency, I actually, now having read what I've read, anticipate that that will be more obvious, not less obvious as time goes on. So I also think that it's great, frankly, to support these additional services. And really where I would love to see something like Twitter go and really wanted to see Twitter go when Jack was in charge of it was towards a protocol-based uh, you know, type of solution here where rather than Twitter being, you know, this service unto itself, it was actually just the largest participant in a decentralized network that was making it so that you could eliminate things like lock-in, you could eliminate things like platform level, you know, censorship, uh, since there would still be this kind of lower lying under, you know, like a uh, publishing layer, as opposed to just the curation layer. So lots to talk about here, but uh, happy to see it, but not super impressed with Jack anymore. Uh, who wants it next? Uh, how about you, Will? <laughs> Yeah, I'll snag it. I think Jack Dorsey's love for protocols and love for like a 
new Twitter version of you know, something open source, something where anyone can use it. It's definitely part of the story here. But I think the bigger story is really what's going on with Elon Musk right now and the track Elon jet saga. Uh, we saw last night that a lot of mainstream reporters were actually suspended for at least seven days uh, because they, quote unquote, doxed Elon's location by giving an address out. And then on top of that, we saw that Elon Musk jumped into a Twitter spaces last night to defend his actions. And then when he got got, he deleted all of Twitter spaces entirely. Can't really use the function right now. And people are questioning why that happened. So I think this just like sheds a light on if you have the public space, if you have a public sphere and you own it and you start making changes to it, people are going to have questions. People are not going to like what you're doing. I've seen a lot of different comments from journalists over the last 24 hours saying that they're not impressed with Elon's decisions right now. And they're thinking Twitter might not be the safe space it is for conversation like it has been in the past. So whether you like Twitter or not, or you like the changes that Elon has been doing, the last 24 hours has definitely changed the conversation quite a bit. And I think we have to look at whatever Jack is doing in the open protocol in light of what Elon is doing with Twitter. Zach, I'll throw it up to you. Yeah, I think the Elon Jet thing is, is pretty funny. I think if you kind of strip it back to what it really is about, I think it's about public data. And I think there's a lot of sort of interesting parallels to what open ledgers, open blockchains provide also in terms of public data, right? Elon's Jet is tracked by various services by virtue of this data being at least partially public, right? Commercial airline traffic is published to the web. I think there's some hoops that you have to go through to find the, tra- the flight data for private jets, right? So that aside, but what it comes down to is an attack on public data and publicness more generally, right? I think there's a really interesting line in the Jack Dorsey post, and it is, quote, transparency builds trust. And I think if you look at that as juxtaposed against this Elon Jet saga, I don't know what the takeaway is. But there's something as it relates to open data, the fight for public th- things, the fight for private things. And I don't know if public data is going to have a good next few years. It's going to get really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's it for the show. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. We're shutting it down. You can't watch this anymore. We're nuking this. It's over. Hash is done for the week. We're going into a weekend-long suspension of ourselves. And we'll be back on Monday (laughs) to talk about some more stuff. I'm Zach. That's Adam. Jen. Will. We're here. Check us out on the podcast network. All that good stuff. We'll talk to you later. Bye now. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.